It's an honor and a pleasure to be here again. Thank you for inviting me, Reverend Colin. Every time I'm here, I feel um, uh, more of your spirit imbued in this building, and it's just beautiful. It's really beautiful. So uh, I want to talk about several things um, that are coalescing for me. I suppose every Dharma talk is like that. And uh, I want to bring to you things that are um, alive in me today and recently and um, to encourage you in your practice and to not be submerged by the things of the world. So here's my offering. In the Lotus Sutra, uh, Mahayana text, there's a story of a Buddha telling a story. And he is talking about a monk who lived in, in a time of what is described as overbearing arrogance. So um, a, a rampant self-righteousness was kind of the zeitgeist at this time. And this uh, monk was not like other monks. He didn't read sutra and study, and he didn't chant. He had just one practice. It was to say to anybody he met, um, I have profound reverence for you. I would never treat you with disparagement or arrogance. You're practicing the Buddha way, and you're certain to reach Buddhahood. And this didn't go over well with people. They thought, uh, who is this simple monk? He doesn't do the practice except for this one annoying activity. He's overstepping his bounds, telling us that we will be Buddhas. And he was often speaking to the Sangha, too. So the Sangha was um, reflecting the spirit of the times. The Sangha was arrogant as well. And uh, man was this guy persistent. So they would drive him away with violence. They would threaten him with sticks and throw rocks at him and he would run out of range and he would turn around and he would say I will never disparage you because you will be Buddhist one day and he kept this up for years I would never disparage you for you are all certain to attain Buddhahood this was so cheeky people threatened him they gave him the name never disparaging or in the translation, it could also be never, uh, always disparaged. Um, these stories are, um, were carried down orally until they were written down. And so in Sanskrit, the, the shift of one vowel can change the, the meaning of the phrase. So we could say he's never disparaging, always disparaged, or sometimes it's um, never despising. I've seen that translation as well. But to disparage is to to um, see someone or something as unworthy. What they say, what they do, what they are is unworthy. And to despise is a kind of hatred. Right? To disparage is a kind of slander. You may recognize that in the precepts we practice not slandering. So for 
this bodhisattva not disparaging, he was taking a vow and he was very diligent in his vow of not disparaging people. When he was at the point of death, he went, underwent a transformation. So the story continues. And all his senses were purified and he regained life as an exemplary teacher of the Lotus Sutra. So at this point in the story, the Buddha reveals that he was none other than Bodhisattva, never disparaging, and that the assembly was none other than the Sangha who was so disparaging to him. But he reassured them that they had all done their penance and that they were on a path of certain enlightenment, certain complete enlightenment. The bodhisattva never disparaging. What is a bodhisattva? We can answer this in many ways, but is a person or a being that shows us an enlightened way of living. They demonstrate through their very selves that they are they that there is an enlightened way. And what was it that never disparaging was showing us? Well, when he said, I will never disparage you, for you are sure to become Buddha one day, he was seeing the Buddha nature in each one of the people that he met. He was saying that everyone has the capacity to be a Buddha. He would say, I, never, I will never disparage you because I have faith in your Buddha nature, faith in your capacity to become enlightened, and that's more important to me than whether I annoy you or not. He says, you're worthy of my respect as a human, although your behavior is terrible and has consequences. You're worthy of my respect. So in the face of receiving this disparagement for years and years, he's demonstrating understanding Buddha nature and he's attending to this vow. And, um, it seems to me this is a very strong practice to keep up. So although he was identified as a simple man with a simple practice, it seems that he was quite um, strong and um, maybe this is a very advanced practice. It's very easy to observe, to disparage others, and it's easy to disparage ourselves. Um, we only have to wait a little time before we can observe it, generally. As I was writing this, I found myself saying, well, who are you to go to San Antonio and give a Dharma talk? Self-disparagement. I didn't listen. So we all know what it feels like to be reviled as well and disparaged. But it's a little harder, perhaps, to catch sight of what it's like to do the reviling, to, to be the one who is disparaging. What does that feel like in ourselves? And in a, in a sense, there's a way that we could think badly of others and never have them know. And so the results of the disparagement are really localized. But there are results, and it may be physical, you know, ulcers, or depression. 
And in another sense, everybody is affected by our negative states of mind. And our states of mind have um, cascading effects. They eventually reach um, people in places that are unimaginable, branching streams. This vow is not to, meant to sugarcoat bad behavior by um, saying it doesn't really matter. It does matter. And in the story, think back to how the Bodhisattva never disparaging um, dealt with his detractors. Well, he ran away. He ran away because he knew that they were dangerous. But he also knew that that's not all they were. So now I'd like to talk to talk about someone who personifies that, Ahsoka, Ahsoka the Great, Emperor Ahsoka. He is a third century BC um, leader in India, um, uh, emperor of the Mauryan Empire, and at that time the Mauryan Empire was the largest in the world, and it uh, clocked in at about two million square miles. It was essentially a world superpower at the time. Ahsoka was the son of the second emperor of um, this empire, but he had kind of a lowly position among all the princes uh, due to his mother's position. So he's one of the younger, one of the lowly ones. However, he had this aptitude that he showed for fighting and for hunting early on. And so his father, the emperor, put him in military school, and he really excelled at that. So early on, he was placed in a position of um, uh, managing the provinces to stamp out rebellions out in the fringes of the empire. At one point, in, he was injured in battle, and he uh, was sent back to the capital. Um, Palipatra is its name in the sutras, and I think there's a it has a similar name today. The city still uh, exists today. And he was nursed back to health by um, Buddhist nuns and monks. So he was familiar with their practice to some extent. However, didn't, uh, he didn't embody this practice, what he may have seen and learned. Um, on his father's death, there was a struggle for the for the throne, and Ashoka killed all his brothers, and in the legend it was 99 brothers, except for one, his youngest brother, his full brother. Uh, and this gives you an idea of what kind of person he was at that time. Um, as a ruler, he was described as brutal and bad-tempered, and the stories about him say things like he, uh, he had a, a um, prison, they called Ashoka's Hell. It looked like a pleasure palace, and inside it, it was um, um, torture, sadism. And another story is that uh, he heard that his harem thought he was ugly, and they were repulsed by him, and so he burned the harem down with the people inside. So these are the kinds of stories that were said about him, and they may be exaggerated for effect, but somewhere in there, they may be a kernel of truth. He was good at war, though, and over eight years, he expanded his empire from Persia on the west all the way to Burma on the east. There are a couple little pieces missing to the puzzle 
One of them was the bottom of India and Ceylon, and the one was um, to the east of India, where the state of Orissa is now. It was an empire called the Kalinga Empire. So he set out to conquer the Kalinga Empire next. And he really did. He um, did a magnificent job of destroying it. And the records say 100,000 people were killed, 100,000 to 300,000 people were killed, and 100,000 people were deported. Uh, he was there at the destruction, and um, after the battle ended, he walked the city to claim it, I suppose, and he saw the bodies everywhere. And even though he was no, uh, he was a veteran of war, he, he'd seen a lot of war, at that time it really affected him. He saw what he had done, and he felt great remorse. And also, he heard a Buddhist monk chanting, Upagupta, Upagupta is the name of the monk. And something turned in him at that point. He um, had a real transformation. So in his rule after this transformation, he uh, was a student of Upagupta. And he, his, his reign became solely focused on the well-being of his subjects. And in part of his penance for what he had done, he um, set out um, teachings on boulders and pillars all over the empire that had the teachings of the Buddha carved into them. Um, they still exist, they're very, very famous. And you may have seen them when you went to India. Reverend, did you remember? Uh, there is a, a pillar um, at Lumbini that he erected. That was, that was the main one that I saw. I don't remember, like, a vulture peak or anything. Yeah. Did you see any, Cheryl? No, and then it's Well, he also marked the locations that were important to Buddhist practice, Lumbini, and um, he erected stupas and started monasteries, and wherever he put these the, the teachings on the columns and the rocks, he used the local language so that people could understand them, so that it wasn't just a monument. It was a, um, an asset to the community. This is his thinking post-conversion. He gave up the wars, of course, and um, he uh, would not practice the caste system. He built roads between trading centers and, and large cities, and along the roads he wanted there to be wells and shade trees and inns so that travel was comfortable and safe for people. His influence is still enduring, and uh, the symbol of India is a, um, a Dharma wheel, which is in um, lions, which is a symbol that was on the top of some capitals that proclaim these edicts and the teachings that he was sharing. And also through his patronage, Buddhism moved from what might have stayed a local sect to a world religion, because his empire was so, so vast. So I want to share a set of the edicts that can be found on a, um, um, one of these pillars. There are various locations that have maybe six, and in this case there are 14. 
he had carved, no living being is to be slaughtered or sacrificed. Medical care for humans as well as animals is to be provided throughout the empire. Monks are to tour the empire every five years teaching the principles of Dharma to the common people. One's parents, priests, and monks are to be respected. Prisoners are to be treated humanely. Subjects are encouraged at all times to report their concerns regarding the administration. All religions are welcomed as they seek self-control and purity of heart. Give to monks and the needy. Glory and fame count for nothing if people do not respect the Dharma. Giving the Dharma to, the others, to others is the best gift that anyone can have. Whoever praises his own religion due to excessive devotion and condemns others with the thought, let me glorify my own religion, only harms his own religion. Therefore, contact, contact between religions is good. Conquest by the Dharma is superior to conquest by force. But if conquest by force is carried out, it should be forbearance and light punishment. The 14 edicts were written so that the people might act in accordance with them. So this set of edicts was, was written about 2,300 years ago. shows that the concerns of government then are um, similar to what we have now. Um, universal health care, um, a transportation system, religious freedom, prison care, all of those are in there. So I ask you to imagine such a radical transformation in our own leaders, our neighbors, and ourselves. As the Bodhisattva never disparaging knows, we have the innate capacity to end greed, hatred, and delusion. And what does it take? For Asoka, he knew something about the ways of the Buddhist monks and nuns from his time in the hospital, but as I said, he didn't embody it until there was a real trauma to him. And this is what turned him around. For us, there's, for everyone, there's always these turning moments. They're always available. But the transformation, even though it's inevitable, it's unpredictable. So keep up the practice. The age of arrogance that the Bodhisattva, not disparaging, lived in is now. So how will we use the examples of Bodhisattva, never disparaging, and Ashoka to navigate the world? I bring this question to you for your reflection. Culture is learned, and it's shared by us clever monkeys. Just as we have learned, as a culture, to expect reviling and extremist thinking and acting, and to use that set of norms in all kinds of situations. We as a culture can also transmit the way of living and thinking for the benefit of others. We have to be constantly aware of how we disparage others and ourselves. It's a form of slander, and uh, many of us students of the Buddha have taken a vow not to slander. I feel that vow needs to become more visible in the world. I don't expect it to be immediately embraced. There will be those deluded into thinking never disparaging is a sign of inferiority, insincerity, or gullibility. 
But I say, don't be deterred. Even they will become Buddha someday. How do you employ that in the milieu of this day and age? And that depends on your own practice. Every situation may be different. One never disparaging approach may be to say, what you did, or what you do, is unacceptably bad and there are consequences. And I know you can do better. Depending on the situation, using skillful means, it could be further explained. I know you can do better because you have the capacity become, to become fully enlightened, free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And then run away from the sticks and rocks that may come and turn around and repeat the vow. I have profound reverence for you. I would never treat you with disparagement or arrogance. You are practicing the Buddha way and certain to it obtain Buddhahood. Ah, uh, okay. Does this bring up anything for you?